Chapter 12 In the Caucasus Meanwhile, the fighting on the Eastern Front accelerated. The Wehrmacht had sent replacements for fallen soldiers, and the army launched an offensive that was a huge success. The Russians were pushed back. In the south, the Germans crossed the Volga, and this freed the pioneers to finally leave the Donetsk Basin, where they had been for several months. The orders were to keep moving east. One afternoon, while Franz was busy reconciling accounts, the mail brought orders for the pioneers to turn quickly towards Stalingrad. Hitler was sending his sixth army there to conquer and watch this important city, and the pioneers would help by building bridges and smoothing out rough dirt roads. Franz ran to the Hauptmann, carrying the orders. Stalingrad, the Hauptmann said after studying them. I don't have a good feeling about this. I hear that the city is a stronghold for the Soviet army. I'm afraid we're going to lose many men there. He sighed and handed Franz the orders to file. But I guess there's nothing to be done. Orders are orders. The pioneers started moving and soon crossed the eastern border of the Ukraine into Russia itself. They reached the city of Rostov, when suddenly the orders changed. Erich, look at this! Franz called excitedly across the room to the sergeant who had just entered. We are no longer going to Stalingrad, but to the Caucasus. Erich glanced at the document. Man, this is good news. Stalingrad is a hell. He looked speculatively at Franz. I don't suppose this has anything to do with your god. Is he looking out for you again? The pioneers changed their course, crossed the River Don, and headed southeast to the Caucasus Mountains. Much later, they learned that the Sixth Army in Stalingrad had almost been completely destroyed in the worst battle of World War II. Soon, the pioneers reached the vast Kalmykaya Steppe, a semi-arid, grass-covered plain reaching all the way to the Caspian Sea. As they cautiously began their march across, they came upon small settlements where the people seemed centuries behind modern civilization. They still lit fires by striking two flints together until a spark set some dry shreds of moss to smoldering. When the soldiers pulled out their cigarette lighters, pushed a button, and produced instant flames, the people stared in disbelief. For several days, the German soldiers found so little water that the precious supply had to be rationed. In the morning, each man received one tin cup full of slightly brackish water, which was all he had to wash, shave, and brush his teeth with. Franz developed a system that worked quite efficiently. He dipped his toothbrush into the water, brushed his teeth, and rinsed them with a large mouthful of water. This he spat back into the cup. Then he wet his shaving brush, lathered his face, and shaved. Finally, he wet his hands with the now soapy water and wiped them over his face and neck. By then, not a drop was left. Halfway across the Kalmykaya steppe, the pioneers came to a halt near a large wooden marker that proclaimed in several languages. You are standing on the border between Europe and Asia. They decided to camp there for the night. Somehow, being in the shadow of that sign made them realize how very far away from home they were. Late that night, Franz stepped out of his tent. There was no moon, only the stars sparkled brightly in the velvet sky. They seemed close enough to touch. Looking up at them, he wondered where his loved ones were. Were they still alive? Maybe at that moment they were also looking up at the sky and thinking about him. And he knew that the same God who watched over the stars in their course was also watching over him and his family. Reassured, he returned to his tent. Finally, the company reached the Caucasus. 
Having come from the desert-like steppe, they felt like they had arrived in Eden. Far below the icy summits of its mountain range, grapevines and pomegranates hung heavy with fruit. The water was fresh and sweet. Mountain meadows bloomed with wildflowers. Best of all, the people were friendly, welcoming the Germans as liberators from communist rule. They gladly gave the soldiers the best quarters and willingly bartered goods with the men. For the time being, the pioneers were stationed in the shadow of Mount Elbrus, at 18,510 feet, the highest mountain in Europe. During this quiet interlude, Franz received an official-looking letter from the government of the state of Bavaria. He could not imagine what it was about. Glancing at the postmark, he saw that the letter had been in transit for more than four months before reaching him. As he slit the envelope open and started reading, he suddenly remembered. More than eight years earlier, he'd spent some time in the Catholic city of Passau in Bavaria, selling the book The Desire of Ages from door to door. A priest had falsely accused him of misrepresenting the contents of the book and misleading the Catholic people, and the authorities had imprisoned him. When his case went to court, he was found innocent of the charges, but in spite of the verdict, the judge still sentenced him to eight years probation. And now, finally, he held in his hands the letter from the Bavarian government informing him that his probation had ended and that he was now free to move about without restrictions. Ah, the irony of it all, mused Franz. Here I am at the border of Asia, involved in a bitter war, and now the Bavarians are telling me I'm a free man. Shaking his head, Franz dropped the letter in the trash. While the Germans were firmly entrenching themselves in the Caucasus, the Soviets soon rallied their forces and launched a counter-attack, pounding their enemies almost daily from the air. Pioneer Company 699, along with the German infantry and artillery, had to be on active duty in order to defend their captured territories. During this terrible time, the weaponless Franz remained unscathed while many of his comrades fell. War often brings out the worst or the best in people, and during the intense fighting, an incident demonstrated the kindliness of Hauptmann Mikus. One of the soldiers, a man named Grimm, owned a gold party pin, which indicated that he was a member of the Nazi party in high standing. He had faithfully served his country throughout the Russian campaign, but now he'd come to the breaking point. Private Grimm approached a friend one day. Je know what, he said. I've had enough of this hell. I can't take it anymore. I'm going to smash my gun and desert to the Russian army. Then the war will be over for me. Why don't you come with me? Greatly alarmed, the friend reported the conversation to Lieutenant Goodshock, who immediately went to the Hauptmann. Hauptmann, I'm sorry to report that Private Grimm has talked to the troops about defecting to the Russians and has urged others to do so. As you know, according to martial law, he must be shot immediately before he can undermine the morale of the company further. I request that he be executed. The Hauptmann paused in thought. Lieutenant, he finally said, send the man to me. I want to talk to him. Private Grimm was brought to the Hauptmann's quarters, where he remained for over an hour. During roll call that night, the Hauptmann addressed the assembled pioneers who waited tensely for the verdict. Soldiers, he said, in carefully assessing Private Grimm, I have come to the conclusion that he is mentally deranged. His comments cannot be taken seriously. He paused for a moment and gazed around the room, 
just the faintest twitch of a smile at one corner of his mouth. It is obvious to me that you are already aware of his condition, since none of you took his suggestion to desert seriously. The soldier's tension dissolved in laughter. Krim went unpunished. After a few weeks of heavy fighting, the Russians discovered that they couldn't break through the German lines as easily as they thought they could. They retreated hastily, and the Wehrmacht once again continued south. The locals, who were often friendly to the Germans, sabotaged the Russians wherever possible. The advance followed the usual order. Pioneers Company 699 led the way, repairing or building bridges. The SS followed, routing out and killing as many Jews as they could find. Finally, the infantry and artillery arrived and occupied the so-called cleansed territories. Again, Franz resumed his pattern of going from house to house to warn the Jews. As they went further south, they came to a region covered with immense fields of sunflowers whose golden faces were turned toward the sun as far as the eye could see. When Company 699 reached the next town, they discovered a large oil mill. Mountains of sunflower seed kernels were piled on the street waiting to be turned into delicious cold-pressed sunflower seed oil, the best in the world. Inside, the men discovered gigantic vats filled to the brim with the clear oil. Later they learned that there were 50,000 gallons of oil in storage. The pioneers were ordered to blow up the mill. Not wanting to see the oil wasted, Franz came up with a plan and went to speak to the Hauptmann. Hauptmann Mikus, I would like to make a suggestion. Just hustle. It would be a shame to destroy all that oil. If you would give me permission, sir, I think I could distribute it fairly among the soldiers. We could fill cans with it and send them home. You know how difficult it is to get any kind of fat in Germany. It would be a great help to our families. Then we can blow up the mill when it's empty. The Hauptmann squinted skeptically. I can't imagine how you accomplish this feat. But you're right. Back home, oil is like gold. If you can pull it off, you have my blessing. Franz set out to organize the pioneers into teams. Some collected empty tin cans that had been discarded by the kitchen. The next group scrubbed the cans until they were sanitary, while others took them to four professional tinsmiths who welded lids back onto each can, leaving only a small opening in the top. Then the cans were filled with oil and taken back to the welders, who welded a small tin square over each hole. The cans were distributed among the men who packaged and addressed them and mailed them home. After the first day, when the operation was running smoothly, Franz took a horse and wagon, filled a 25-gallon barrel with oil, and drove several hours to the field hospital to get more cans. He knew that the wounded at the hospital got nothing but canned goods to eat, so he traded the barrel of oil for a whole wagon full of empty cans. In the evenings, Franz secretly invited the local civilians to pick up oil. They came with water canisters, vodka bottles, and stoneware crocks, and Franz filled them all. Because of this kindness, the grateful population caused the Germans no problems. Within three days, Company 699 had emptied the oil vat and dynamited the building. At home, the oil was a godsend. Helena traded some of it for food. She gave one can to the pharmacist, and as a result, she was able to get medications that weren't normally available. Another can went to the manager of the apartment building where she lived, 
and in turn he quickly repaired any damage to her apartment and replaced windows broken by the air pressure during bombing raids. Again the pioneers pressed on. The advance, however, slowed down as one tank division after another was pulled out of the Caucasus and sent to assist in the Battle of Stalingrad. Finally, at the oil fields of Baku by the Caspian Sea near the Iranian border, the German advance came to a standstill. The battalions remaining in the Caucasus were too decimated to continue. This has been a production of Solemn Appeal Ministries, all rights reserved. For more information, please visit us at SolemnAppeal.com or call 1-888-449-1452.